Parents who pay child support, and sometimes parents who receive child support, are sometimes surprised when a judge, arbitrator, or lawyer acting as a family law mediator say that their parent's income for child support is not the same as the total income on their tax return on which they pay taxes. That can have significant impact on the amount of child support that is paid. It also affects spousal support, although that can be even more complicated. Since income for support can be different from income for taxes, and since a listener asked, this edition of the Ontario Family Law Podcast explains how family law adjusts income when dealing with support. I'm John Schumann, a certified specialist in family law in Ontario. I'm also a mediator, arbitrator, and collaborative lawyer. This podcast is companion to my book, Guide to the Basics of Ontario Family Law, which is available on the iBookstore, Amazon, Kobo, and in fine bookstores. In 1997, the federal government enacted the Child Support Guidelines to simplify the process for determining the amount of child support for divorcing parents. All the provinces quickly followed with provincial child support guidelines, which are essentially the same for parents who are not married. The purpose of the child support guidelines was to make the determination of child support much simpler by basing it on the parent's incomes. The child support tables reflect how much income a parent would probably spend on the children if the family was together, taking into account different costs of living in different provinces, government programs, and other factors. Hmm. However, the text of the child support guidelines also recognizes that not everyone earns their income the same way. Some people earn a salary. Some people get benefits. Some people receive dividends from corporations. Some people get money from insurance. Some are self-employed and can control how much income appears on their tax return, while others cannot. How a person gets their income can greatly affect how much money is in their wallet after paying taxes. Hmm. But the tables are only based on income, and they are not different tables for different ways people earn income. Instead, certain sections of the child support guidelines adjust a parent's income prior to applying that income to the tables. Section 16 says that non-recurring capital or business investment losses can be taken out of the calculation of income for child support where including them would not be fair. Section 17 says that where a parent controls a corporation and can control the income that comes out of that corporation, a judge can look at the corporation's income to determine the child support or can look at what the spouse could or would be paid for the same service on the open market. Oh. Section 19 considers a number of situations, such as where a parent is deliberately not working or is deliberately not earning as much as he or she could be. <laughs> where the parent organizes his or her affairs to have a lower income for tax purposes, such as deducting expenses being paid through dividends or capital gains or otherwise structures income to make it lower for tax purposes, where the parent is a beneficiary under a trust, where some or all of the parent's income is exempt from tax, where the parent refuses to provide financial disclosure to allow his or her income to be determined properly. (laughs) In addition, Schedule 3 of the Child Support Guidelines sets out additional adjustments, most of which lower the parent's income for support purposes. There are several of these. Some examples of amounts taken off tax return income include union dues, work travel expenses, many other work-related expenses, the universal child care benefit, carrying charges and interest expenses, several types of expenses and charges for partnership Canadian-controlled private corporations and other specific business expenses, 
In short, types of expenses that actually reduce the amount of money that a person has in their wallet. Many of these correct for additional expenses that salaried employees don't have to include in their income for tax purposes. There are a lot of precise and technical adjustments to income under the child support guidelines, and a few more in the case law. Anyone who is trying to do their child support case themselves will have to look them up because they can make a difference of thousands of dollars a year in support. But going over all of them and explaining each one of them would take hours. So for this video, I am going to cover them more generally and give the principles on which income is adjusted to explain what types of adjustments are made which can help understand the specifics when looking at the text of the child support guidelines. Ah. The child support tables are based on what a salaried employee would pay for his or her kids. With both parents or salaried employees, calculating child support is easy. In fact, there is an online government program that adjusts child support orders for a minimal cost. Oh. Yeah. That's the best option for dealing with child support for people who get all their income reported on T4 slips. But many people don't just earn a salary, so the guidelines make adjustments to the support payer's income. The idea is that the income number used for the child support tables is the number that reflects that person having the same amount of money in their wallet as a salaried employee. Oh. I will give some examples to illustrate that. One of the most common examples is self-employed people and their cell phones. Many people need cell phones for business, so the cell phone is absolutely a proper business expense that the person can deduct from their income for taxes, which allows them to pay less tax. But because the self-employed person already has a cell phone for business, they don't really need a personal cell phone, so they use the same one. That just makes sense. But a salaried employee has to pay for their cell phone out of their own pocket and doesn't get to deduct the phone from taxes. So that person has much less money left in their wallet. So to make things fair, the child support guidelines say that the value of the personal use of that cell phone is added on to the self-employed person's income for support purposes. So that makes the self-employed person's income higher than appears on their tax return. In addition, the law says that the tax the self-employed person did not have to pay, but the salaried employee would have to pay, also gets added to the self-employed person's income. When the self-employed person's income is in the higher tax brackets, that can double the value of the personal use of the cell phone and adding that to the income reported to the tax return. Cell phones are just one example of these types of expenses. There are many more. That is one of the advantages of being self-employed from a tax perspective and a disadvantage from a support perspective. But what if a salaried employee gets a cell phone through his or her employer? That is a benefit, often a fully or partially taxable benefit that hits the tax return anyway. But if it does not, then it is reported on the employee's family law financial statement and the value of that benefit is also added to his or her income. Another big advantage of being self-employed and having a corporation is that the self-employed person can pay themselves less, reporting less on their personal tax return and more on their corporate tax return where the income may be taxed at a lower rate. This is another time when there can be a big difference between income for tax purposes and income for support purposes because employees can't control how much income they report on their tax return and pay the full tax on everything they earn. Under Section 18 of the Child Support Guidelines, all the income that a person who controls a corporation could take out of their corporation as income but does not take out of their corporation is added to his or her income for support purposes. In addition, when an income in the corporation is taxed at a lower rate, a further amount 
amount is added to the income of the person with the corporation to account for the fact that less tax means more money in that person's pocket than a salaried employee would have. When a person pays support based on income that he or she has left in a corporation, it is important that the support payer keep track of that so that when he or she takes the money out in the future and the income finally hits their personal tax return, they don't pay support on that amount again. That can lead to a decrease in the amount of support in some circumstances. Also, note that corporations may need to keep money in the corporation for business purposes. When it is necessary for a corporation to keep income, such as to save it to buy equipment in the future or because a bank requires a certain amount of money to stay in the corporation before it will loan money, then that money is not available to the support payer and it is not included in income. Oh. Only surplus cash that the business does not need is added to the support payer's income along with the tax savings. Another way to lower income is to pay money to a spouse, children, or other relatives. It can have a big advantage that those people can have lower tax rates and so can have more money after tax, which they might or might not share with the owner of the corporation. This is called income splitting. Lots of people do it. Often it is not even allowed for tax purposes. But if a support payer diverts income to a family member, friend, or someone else who is close to them, unless that is a legitimate payment at market rates, that income can be added back to the support payer's income along with any accompanying tax savings. Oh. Some banks and other large corporations pay executives through stock options, actual stock, RCAs, or virtual stock. This can have a huge tax advantage in two ways. First, the income does not hit the executive's income tax unless they cash in the stock, sometimes many years down the road, perhaps after support obligation has ended. Second, when the executive does cash in those shares, they are taxed as capital gains rather than as salary or other types of income, which means they are taxed at a much lower rate. There's a third possible advantage in that for stocks that are always going up, as bank stocks generally have, the amount the executive receives when they cash in the stock can be much more than was originally attributed to them when they were paid them, resulting in much more money in their pocket. But while these compensation schemes are great in that they give the executive more money through lower taxes, they make child support much more complicated for the same reason. Hmm. There have to be adjustments to the executive's income for support purposes. It is not just complicated to figure out how much income should be attributed to an executive each year, especially when income is deferred and may result in a larger payment at a later date, but there has to be a further adjustment to reflect that the executive will pay less tax on this compensation than he or she would on a salary. Again, since the child support tables are based on salaried or employment income, when a support payer pays tax at a lower rate, their income for support purposes is increased to the point where a salary income would generate the same tax in the support payer's pocket. Oh. On top of all that, executives who have support obligation will say that there is quite a bit of uncertainty in these compensation schemes yep, yep. because they are almost always pegged to the success of the company and its stock price. For that reason, some adjustments are necessary to reflect the possibility that income could increase or decrease a lot before the executive receives it at some point in the future. Consequently, there are complicated formulas for calculating income through stock options, RSUs, RCAs, or stock or virtual stock. These are complicated enough that it will be necessary to hire an accountant to calculate income for support purposes. Fortunately, there are accountants that specialize in these types of calculations. Oh. In fact, for all but the most straightforward corporations or self-employment income situations, making all the adjustments to the income of a support payer to apply it to the child support tables often requires an accountant to do the adjustments. In discussing income for support, I have mentioned the child support guidelines several times.
However, there are many cases that say when looking at spouse's income for spousal support, the same procedures and calculations should be used. Oh. So income for spousal support is usually the same as income for child support and separation. Yeah. Although, as discussed in previous episodes, in spousal support, there are additional issues related to entitlement and the legal basis for spousal support that also affect the amount of support. Uh. In addition, spousal support is not automatically adjusted every year like child support, so changes in one or both spouses' income after separation does not necessarily change spousal support. Hmm. Going through sections 7 through 19 and Schedule 3 of the Child Support Guidelines reveals that there are a lot of adjustments to income. There are also adjustments to what portion of Section 7 expenses that parents share based on their tax situation and other benefits. Any time a support payer is self-employed, whether it be through a sole proprietorship, partnership, or corporation, both parents should speak to a good family law lawyer to make sure they get the income and support figures right. Yep. That is often the case whenever someone earns a significant portion of his or her income in a way that is not reported on a T4. Without knowing exactly how income may be adjusted for support, it is possible that support will be either too high or too low. To make sure support is right, speak to a lawyer. You can reach my office to schedule an appointment with either me or my colleagues by calling 416-446-5847. If you need some more general family law or children's law guidance, or if you need to understand Ontario family law better so you can make better decisions, if you need to know the best parenting options after separation, or if you need to understand how finances work during a marriage or common law relationship and after separation or divorce get a copy of my book guide to the basics of ontario family law you can access it immediately on the ibook store on amazon for the kindle version or you can download it for kobo amazon can deliver the paperback version directly to your doorstep you can also get a lot more Ontario family law information on www.shumanlaw.ca. Not only are there hundreds of pages of family law information and links, but there are links to get my book and links to reach my office to meet with either me or one of my colleagues. You can also set up an appointment to speak to us by calling 416-446-5847. It is always best to get a lawyer who can give you expert advice that's specific to your situation. In addition to my website, keep up to date on family and children's law issues by liking my Facebook page, following me on Twitter at @humanfamilylaw, and finding me on LinkedIn. Of course, please subscribe to my YouTube channel and hit the notification bell to keep up to date. You can also get the audio version of the Ontario Family Law Podcast on all major podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and many more. Or you can get all the episodes at www.shumanlaw.ca. Just look for podcasts in the drop-down menu. Thanks for participating in this podcast. We will get together again soon.